The story you were about to hear is true. Attention, all true. He's alive. As a kid, I remember taking a can of Coca-Cola to my room and hiding it up there on a Saturday night, waiting till everybody had sort of gone to bed, creeping over to my little black and white television, turning it on, and watching Saturday Night Live. It was a rerun from an older season. I was familiar with the original cast by reputation, but what I was seeing was unpolished and unlike the comedy I had become familiar with. So as I nursed that soda, I was hypnotized especially by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, who would, during the episode, sing a song dressed in bee costumes, a song called I'm a King Bee. I didn't understand what was going on, but I couldn't look away. Their charisma and talent was undeniable, and I quickly became a Blues Brothers fan based just on that. And I remember going into school the next day and trying to tell everyone about what I had seen, that the Blues Brothers used to dress up like bees. Nobody believed me. My friends had seen the Blues Brothers, and they were familiar with the outfits that everybody knows them from. But I insisted that, no, when they were on television, they didn't wear those outfits. They used to dress like bees before they dressed like that. Little did I know that this was a one-time thing and sort of a test before they would become the Blues Brothers. They didn't want to reveal their new look and outfit and their whole characters at this point. But my insistence on the Blues Brothers being a B-band continued for long after that, as I refused stubbornly to give up on my observation, much to my later embarrassment when I figured this all out. Did I get made fun of a little? Yes, deservedly so. I sort of like the fact that I have these disjointed memories from my youth. When I would pick up a little something somewhere, I had no means to verify what I was seeing. Now you can kind of go on the internet, track down the history of something. But then I had to piece things together. So even as I got older, not everything lined up. While I think misinformation isn't always a great thing, there's something a little bit more magical about not getting the whole picture. Something that we lose today, and something I sort of miss. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Blues Brothers. We'll talk a little bit about the Blues Brothers before the movie. We'll talk about the production. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about the plot, some of the locations, how well the movie did, its soundtrack, the sequel video games, and where you can find the Blues Brothers today. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Blues Brothers show band and review are a blues and rhythm revivalist band founded in 1978 by John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. The two characters, Joliet Jake Blues is the lead singer, Elwood Blues is the harmonica player and backing vocalist. The band itself is filled with very talented musicians. They would make their first appearance on Saturday Night Live on January 17, 1976. In this first appearance, they dress as bees, as Howard Shore and his all-bee band, and Belushi sang the Slim Harpo song, I'm a King Bee, with Aykroyd backing him up, also in a bee costume. It is the same bee costume they would wear in the Killer Bees sketch, which was very popular back then. According to Saturday Night Live lore, these characters that Aykroyd and Belushi had been creating were sort of a long time coming, but while they were creating it, Aykroyd was writing and developing a story around these characters, which would later be known as the Tome because it was so large. And that's because Aykroyd had never written a screenplay or anything like it before. So he created this huge book that explained the characters' origins, how each member of the band was recruited, even why the car that they had was so powerful. Basically, it was magic. So Belushi becomes a hot property, and because of Saturday Night Live, the Blues Brothers, and Animal House, Universal Studios becomes very interested in making a Blues Brothers movie, and a bidding war ensues for the film. David John Landis was brought in to help write and direct this film. Landis was born in 1950. He's a director, actor, screenwriter, producer, probably best known for his work on American Werewolf in London, Animal House, the Thriller music video, and of course, the Blues Brothers. When Aykroyd brought the script into Landis, he had very little time, just two weeks, to turn this giant 300-page thing into a movie, and he did it. And the results are pretty good. At its heart, The Blues Brothers is a tale of redemption. Two blood brothers, Jake and Elwood, are given a mission by God to save the orphanage where they grew up. To do this, they decide they're going to get their R&B band back together and have a performance that will make $5,000 that they can pay the back taxes on the orphanages with. This turns out to be a bit of a struggle as they encounter neo-Nazis, police who are after them, a mysterious woman played by Carrie Fisher who packs some pretty heavy weaponry, and of course a country and western band. Today's show is brought to you by your men's clothing store. Need a new suit to play that show that's going to save the orphanage? Head to your men's clothing store. You're treated like a prince, you look like a duke, you have that royal feeling. You can rest assured, you're dressed assured, your clothes are fit for a king. Almost immediately, there were problems with the Blues Brothers. Principal photography was delayed when Aykroyd took a lot longer to make the script and Landis had to rewrite it. Also, John Belushi, I don't know if you know this, had a bit of a reputation for being a party animal and a bit of a drug user. And his sudden disappearances and unpredictability caused some pretty costly delays. Add to that the fact that they didn't really have a finalized budget and had tons of car chases and destroyed cars, and the cost of this film started to add up. 
when they showed the film, people thought it was way too long and that it wasn't going to do well. And so Landis had to cut 15 minutes out of the film. And the film was only booked into less than half of the theaters that a film of its budget would normally have been booked into. You can't kind of blame them. Aykroyd and Belushi had left Saturday Night Live where they were huge stars and the bankability of them went down because of it. Add to that the fact that 1941, a movie that Belushi had been in, didn't do so well and you could see why the studios might be nervous. The movie has a giant cast of very talented people in it. John Belushi as Joliet Jake Blues on lead vocals. Dan Aykroyd as Elwood Blues on harmonica and lead vocals. Curtis, who was played by Cab Calloway, the amazingly talented Cab Calloway. In addition to the band in the film, you had Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, from the Star Wars films as a sort of mysterious woman. Turns out she was in a relationship with Jake and had some issues with him. Fun fact, Carrie Fisher was engaged to co-star Dan Aykroyd during the shooting, and they were supposed to get married. They got the blood test and everything, but Carrie, I guess, was still in love with Paul Simon, who she had been dating before Dan Aykroyd, and would go back to him. Other musicians in the film are Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, James Brown, John Lee Hooker, and even Shaka Khan. And as for actors, you had Frank Oz of Yoda and Miss Piggy fame as the corrections officer at the beginning. John Candy played Burton Mercer, Orange Whip, Orange Whip. Charles Napier, Stephen Williams, Paul Rubens, and even Steven Spielberg making cameos. A lot of people in this cast. Now, with a little bit more about one member of this cast, is Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person? Hi friends, Vic Sage here with Why Should I Know This Person? And this time we are going to be taking a look at Blues Brothers co-star Charles Napier. Charles L. Napier was born on April 12, 1936, in Mount Union, Kentucky. In 1954, after he graduated from high school, he enlisted into the U.S. Army, where he would eventually be assigned to the 11th Airborne Division, and at the time of his discharge, he had earned the rank of sergeant. After leaving military service, Napier attended Western Kentucky University, graduating in 1961 with a major in art and a minor in physical education. Napier originally wanted to be a basketball coach, and in fact landed a job as the assistant coach at his old high school. He would eventually leave that vocation and tried his hand working at a bridge company and as a truck driver before moving to Clearwater, Florida to teach art at JFK Junior High School. In 1964, Napier would return to Western Kentucky University for graduate school. It was at this time that he was encouraged to pursue acting, and four years later, he would appear in his first TV role as an uncredited police officer in 1968's Mannix. Quickly, he was being seen in Mission Impossible, Hogan's Heroes, and surprisingly, in an episode of Star Trek entitled The Way to Eden, where he played a space hippie named Adam. I say surprising because in most of Napier's roles, he played the military figure or the tough guy. You didn't expect him to play a pacifist. Napier would return to the Star Trek universe in Deep Space Nine as General Denning. Charles would appear in four of Russ Meyer's films, Cherry, Harry, and Raquel, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Super Vixens, and The Seven Minutes in the early 1970s. Napier would continue to appear in TV and film with notable appearances in Kojak, Beretta, The Rockford Files, and a 13-episode run in the Oregon Trail series where he co-starred with the likes of Rod Taylor and Andrew Stevens. 
1977, Napier would befriend director Jonathan Demme and would end up starring in eight of his films, including Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia. At this time, besides appearing in popular TV shows of the day, he, along with Adam's family, Ted Cassidy, was providing the vocal growls for The Incredible Hulk in the live-action TV series and would actually guest star in two episodes during the show's run. In 1980, Napier landed the role of Tucker McElroy, the lead singer of the Good Old Boys in John Landis's The Blues Brothers, and that same year he played the villain in six episodes of the t- TV series BJ and the Bear. Throughout the 80s, he would appear in such TV shows as Knight Rider, Chips, Dallas, The Dukes of Hazards, Night Court, WizKids, The A-Team, and Outlaws. In 1985, he garnered the role of Marshall Murdoch, the nemesis of John Rambo in Rambo First Blood Part II. Napier wouldn't slow down in the 90s, though more of his work came from low-budget action, horror, and sci-fi films. He would land his first animated series work on 1994's The Critic, where he provided the voice of Duke Phillips, but he would also voice characters in animated series such as The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, Jumanji, Men in Black, Superman, Justice League, and The Simpsons, to name a few. Napier's last film role would be in the 2009 comedy The Goods, Live Hard, Sell Hard, where he co-starred with Jeremy Piven. Just before his death in October of 2011, he published an autobiography entitled Square Jaw and Big Heart. This has been Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person? Signing off until next time. Thanks, Vic. Another star of the film is the Bluesmobile, which was a California Highway Patrol car. They bought 13 of them to use in the film. They were 1974 Mount Prospect, Illinois, Dodge Monaco patrol cars. Each one was outfitted by the people behind the scenes to do particular chores. Some were meant for speed, others for jumps, others to just be smacked around. During those big police chases, they purchased upward of 60 police cars. Most of those were destroyed during filming, and 40 stunt drivers were used, and they needed to keep a 24-hour body shop going to repair cars as they went. At the time of its release, it held the world record for the most cars destroyed in one film, which I believe it was eventually surpassed by its own sequel, and then by one of the Matrix films. If you're not from the Chicago area, this film might have been one of your earliest exposures to Chicago, because Chicago and the areas around it play a very important role in the film. I briefly lived in the Chicago area, and... I did watch the Blues Brothers while I lived there and would go out and try to find the areas that I saw in it. There are guides online if you're interested in tracking down some of those locations and visiting them. The film opened in 594 theaters on June 20th, 1980 and made $4.8 million. It was the second that week, but in first place was the juggernaut that was The Empire Strikes Back. It was the 10th film for the entire year, so not bad. Worldwide, it would go on to gross $115.2 million. Reviews were positive. Word of mouth was great for the film. The soundtrack to the Blues Brothers movie is one for the books. But what made it sound so good? And what gave the music such a gritty, soulful, delicious glow? Well, let's start with the musicians who recorded the music. You had the godfather of soul, James Brown. You had the king of Heidi Heidi Ho, Cab Calloway, who was born on Christmas Day, 
You had Brother Ray, Ray Charles, whose voice will never be duplicated or replicated. The Queen of Soul, Miss Aretha Franklin, who's still hitting those high notes at age 71. You had Blue Lou Marini, Willie Too Big Hall, Matt Guitar Murphy, Luther Guitar Jr. Johnson, Steve the Colonel Cropper, Calvin Fuzz Jones, Donald Duck Dunn, Alan Mr. Fabulous Rubin, and Willie Big Eye Smith, who have all played and recorded along with so many greats and are responsible for molding and shaping 70s and 80s rock, soul, and funk as we know it. And let's never forget the singing voices of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, just to add some sauce to the mix. You also need to look at the equipment used to record the soundtrack. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, recording studios used analog systems like Tascam, Take, and Sony reel-to-reel tape machines for recording. This is where you get that natural tone and compression sound that you won't find in today's digitally recorded music. One thing I've noticed is that there are heavy, laden reverb songs, and then there's also very dry songs. This is one thing that they pulled off very nicely in the Blues Brothers, all the way to the belief that these songs were recorded completely live onto film. The film's music score composer is one of the best, Mr. Ira Newborn. He sort of looks like if Jeff Bridges and Stephen King had a son. Ira worked in many aspects of entertainment, including performing in clubs, in commercials, on Broadway, and in movies as a guitarist. He's also a music director, an arranger, conductor, and composer. He's best known for composing music in comedy films and TV. He's composed television theme and background music for SCTV in 1981, Police Squad in 1982, and Tales from the Crypt in 1992. His film work includes 48 Hours in 1982, 16 Candles in 1984, Weird Science in 1985, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986, Dragnet in 1987, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in 1987, The Naked Gun from The Files of Police Squad in 1988, Uncle Buck in 1989, Ace Ventura Peck Detective in 1994, and The Naked Gun 33 and a Third in 1994. If you notice, Mr. Newborn worked very hard to the tune of two or three projects at one time. Also, if you've noticed, he works a lot with law enforcement movies and comedies. And he's worked with John Hughes for most of John Hughes's career. I still feel his best movie would have to be Blues Brothers, just for the fact that he's recording with so many great musicians in history. And I would think that alone would add to the best of his creativity. So until next time, this has been Zerbinator with this edition of Sounds Retro. The music in the Blues Brothers is very important, and this album is a great introduction to a lot of artists you might not have heard of. Some of those artists actually appear in the movie. People like James Brown, Aretha Franklin, and Cab Calloway. Everything they had to do in the movie, though, they had to do lip-syncing. And they weren't all that great at lip-syncing. These are people who made their living recording live, and they were very good at it. So Franklin had real problems doing it. And so they had to cut up a lot of different takes to make hers work. And you'll see that when you watch the film again. You'll see how cut up it sort of looks compared to other ones. When Cab Calloway was going to release his version of Minnie the Moocher on the album, 
He had done a disco variation on Minnie the Moocher. This was late 70s. But they were very insistent that he do his original, which he was kind of bummed with. He wanted to move on. But if you have the album, you get a great version of Minnie the Moocher, amongst many, many other songs. In 1998, a sequel, The Blues Brothers 2000, came out, starring John Goodman, Joe Morton, Evan Bonifant, and Dan Aykroyd, also filled with musicians. I went and saw this in the theater. It was a bit of a letdown after really loving the original movie. I've since watched it on TV, and it's maybe not as bad as I originally thought. I think I just had very high expectations, which happens when there's something you've known since your childhood, and then they're revisiting it. It's such a risk. Not sure it should always be taken. They demanded that 25 minutes of the film be removed. Landis would remove 15 minutes for its release for a 133-minute theater release. When the film was released on DVD, it was restored to its full 148-minute glory. If you have the anniversary edition, that one also contains both the theatrical cut and the extended version, so you could see the scenes that were left out, which gives some more character development, which makes it very interesting. The film is available on all formats, starting on VHS all the way up to Blu-ray, and often can be found on streaming services. A book, The Blues Brothers Private, was published in 1980, and this sort of helped to build on the characters. There's a lot of little bits of information in it, and it's sort of like getting a dossier on these characters. If you're a hardcore Blues Brothers fan, I would say you should pick it up. If you're a video game fan, the Blues Brothers have been in three video games. The first one was called The Blues Brothers, which was released on a couple of systems, including the NES and Game Boy. It's got some flaws, but it's not a bad game. And it was, I guess, popular enough to spawn a sequel, The Blues Brothers Jukebox Adventure, which came out on PC, the Super NES, and Game Boy. Not the greatest game, but not as bad as other people have made it out to be. In the year 2000, Blues Brothers 2000 was released by Titus Software. It is based on the movie of the same name, but as you might guess from the release date, there were problems with it. It was supposed to coincide with the release of the movie in 1998, but due to delays and problems, it wouldn't come out until 2000, when the movie was way out of everybody's radar, and you can kind of pull from that what you want as to what to expect from the video game. The Blues Brothers is one of those amazing comedies that everyone should see. It's filled with quotable lines that make it the perfect movie to watch with your friends. If you have a young person in your life and you want to introduce them to comedy, films like this and like Caddyshack are a great way for them to appreciate quotable comedies, especially in classic comedies from the 70s and 80s. So fire it up this weekend and enjoy some great music and some great laughs. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Vic Sage for another great Why Should I Know This Person. If you have feedback for Vic, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Thanks to the Zerbinator for Sounds Retro. You might have heard the Zerbinator on past Retroist podcasts. If you'd like to hear more from him, I would suggest you stop by his website, Zerbinatorland, at zerbinator.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. 
Who wants an orange whip? Orange whip? Orange whip? Three orange whips. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.